You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Thanks for being with us. Uh, this is episode 11, and we appreciate you being here. Let's check in with the guys. Paul, how's it going? It's going good, brother. Good, man. Joey, what's up? Oh, not a whole lot. Doing all right. All right. All right. We got some new audio equipment, uh, software, I should say. So hopefully that makes my life as an editor a little bit easier. We're not using free software anymore. I'm actually paying money <laughs> to <laughs> paying money to uh, hopefully improve the audio quality. So uh We'll, we'll work through that, and hopefully that makes the show a little bit better, and we can uh, continue making the show better for the listeners. But after all, this is a concrete show about concrete. You want to talk about concrete? Let's talk about some concrete. What do you got? Um, actually, I was going to talk about something. It might have been the last episode, but basically we said, you know, sometimes we think of concrete as being more complicated than it needs to be, but at the end of the day... It seemingly so you can put just about anything in concrete and make it work so so I know Joey wants to talk about uh, ash and the availability and the use of fly ash and I want to talk about using glass ground glass as an actual pozzolan and a company that's doing so relatively successfully albeit on a small scale up in Connecticut of all states so that's gonna go hand in hand Joey what do you know about fly ash uh, I just know it's a byproduct of the coal industry. Yes, sir. And, I mean, they're still making ash. Yeah, they're making it. So the issue with the uh, fly ash is it it's only comes from the uh, coal-fired power plants. Right. And as those power plants get refurbished and retrofitted or if new ones are getting built, they're all being done with natural gas. Natural gas isn't going to give you any of that ash. So... Uh, with the environmental concerns, people are switching to gas. Another reason they're switching to gas is because how those plants operate. So if you're running on a furnace that's burning coal uh, in order to power it, you generally can't turn it off. And if you do, it's very difficult to get back started. 
right. where when you switch to natural gas, you just flip a switch on and off, and you've got heat burning exactly where you, well, you know, at the temperature you wanted to burn and where you wanted to burn. Uh, it's a lot easier to use. So as people start to switch, uh, the flash that's being generated uh, is supposedly less, uh, less available. And uh, Joey's article sort of hints that just because there aren't as many coal-powered, uh, coal-fired power plants, doesn't mean the availability of flash is as low as people in the concrete industry think it is. Right. Uh, so, Joey, what are those numbers looking like? So, actually, um, it says over half of the coal ash produced last year, 2019, uh, was recycled. And that makes the fifth consecutive year that more than half of the power generating station byproducts in the U.S. was used rather than, you know, just thrown away. Um, the volume of flash used in concrete, which was 12.6 million tons, was a 1% increase over 2018. Um, flash production, I mean, flash use in uh, other, you know, cementitious production has still dropped like 22%. So people are still, you know, using less and less of it, but just flash and concrete was up a percent. I don't know that it's a telltale sign that either that flash is, you know, increase, flash use is increasing. Maybe it was just a one-off thing because overall flash, you know, consumption is down. Well, the overall ready mix market in 2019 was up like four or five percent, I think. It so, was, yeah. Yeah, so for flash to go up just one percent means it's not really tracking with uh, the rest of the industry. Right, and that's and that's where I wanted to interject uh, something that I had just learned recently and, and maybe offer a, a theory that you know people are still using secondary materials, but maybe they're trying to get away from flash because they can see the writing on the wall. Maybe. Well, I mean, everybody's been seeing this writing on the wall for like 10 years. For 10 years, it's, oh, we, where are we going to get our ash? Where are we going to get our ash? we got to find something else. And then every year, like, magically, there's more ash. It's, right. Yeah. So, uh, but it's so cheap. I mean, it's so cheap. People are going to do what they got to do to find it. Mm -hmm. So uh, you'd love to pay $40 a ton forever, but those prices are starting to come up a little bit. And what I know some people are doing is uh, these resource companies have it landfilled. Like Joey was talking, a bunch of it's being thrown away. Well, some of that stuff that's been thrown away can still be taken out reclassified and sold mm -hmm. and so yeah the cost goes up from forty dollars a ton to sixty dollars a ton but still that's still half, half the price, price yeah it, at least more or less than half the price or whatever but anyway so people are doing what they got to do to get that out and get it into their concrete um, i'd love to see for other scms to come out and you know make a run and that's what uh, you're you're sort of looking at there right ground glass ground glass all right talk to me i don't know anything about ground glass ground glass is uh <laughs> not something that i would have said or, or had the epiphany it was like oh why didn't i think of that you know what i mean but apparently uh it can it can be used as a pozzolan and um the product name that i want to talk about is positive p-o-z-z-o-t-i-v-e positive cute name by urban mining <laughs> urban mining is the company uh, and they have a plant in beacon falls connecticut where they claim they can create uh, an annual output of about 50,000 tons of ground glass. Okay. Um, and what makes this particular uh, company, this particular process unique is that they can claim they can recycle any size, shape, color, cleanliness, et cetera, et cetera, and, and come out and make something that is an optimal particle size that is also consistent. 
apparently the particle size and the consistency of that particle size mm-hmm. is where the importance lies in making ground glass pozzolan that is effective. Well, yeah, that's going to be all all pozzolans. I mean, we see that in our KLN and Natapolgate businesses. you got to be consistent with your particle sizes. Cement's going to be the same way. They're measuring the blaine. Blaine's really needs to fall in a certain Mm-hmm. certain range be consistent from batch to batch yeah. uh, but the the big reason for the particle size being consistent is because the available surface area there really depicts reactivity and so if you have a higher surface area it's typically going to be more reactive so you want to stay consistent so that people can have predictable concretes um that fifty thousand ton is that just because of the plant they have in Connecticut, and so they're just going to service, like, New York City? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure if they're servicing New York City specifically or not. So far, they claim that they've serviced um, or they've used this positive product in 10 million CMUs, which is a oh, decent nice. amount of block. Yeah. 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 Um, 750,000 square foot of pavers and 500,000 square foot of pre-stressed plank. Well, you know, if, if it's going into block, then it's probably very economical <laughs> sales yeah. point. Those guys, are, they yeah, don't mess gonna, around. They're not going to pay a whole lot for anything. <laughs> nope. They, they, they probably don't pay did a whole they, lot for their coffee in the morning. <laughs> did they mention a reason why they put it in block and all that stuff first? You, you know they didn't. It was a very short article. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, I, I didn't dive real deep into urban mining and their whole process. Mm-hmm. I know that they claim that you know, they're not the first people to use ground glass, but the the process that they use to gain those uh, uniformly shaped and sized particles, that process itself is actually what they have the patent on. Mm-hmm. Not the product, of course, but whatever process they use is is uh, apparently the golden ticket there. And they claim they can replace up to 50% of Portland. Yeah. That's a lot. I was going to ask you how much they were replacing in those blocks. Yeah. Cause well, it, they said up to 50%. Also, they didn't claim any work in the ready mix industry. I mean, yeah. they're working with. Uh, uh, well, I mean, if they're blocked, dude, they're all pan mixer or ribbon mixers uh, usually in those block plants. But the interesting thing is going to be uh, if they can sell this to cement manufacturers, blend it right into the cement itself. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way you need to go with this stuff. Don't don't be like the fly ash where you've got to have separate silos. Let's, uh, let's get this joker blended right into the cement. Let's let's roll. Yeah. Well, and and another thing too, because they have the patented process, and and really, I think what they want to sell is the process. And yeah, they the, want to the, license that out. Right. Yeah. License that out and put it. I mean, if you can make if you can make a plant with a fifty thousand ton annual output you just put those plants around metropolitan areas and just kind of grow that in a in a franchise type well, of way well this is uh this kind of in line with what we're seeing where you know these companies are trying to make these uh like lc2 and lc3 cements i mean we're seeing it the portland limestone cement this would just be another variation of that so to be able to license it to you know, one of these big cement manufacturers and just have them incorporate it. That way you don't have to have any kind of franchise. So instead of licensing out a new manufacturing facility, uh, you would just license this to an existing facility that can grind the glass and, and add in a particle separator or whatever kind of magnet or whatever they're using to pull the impurities out of this uh, this glass process. Right. Well, right. yeah, so, I mean, you know, everyone, I, I guess in, in closing there, everyone's trying to, 
make a concrete that's just as efficient, but you're trying to cut costs where you can and, and really trying to cut the Portland where you can. I would imagine from you know CO2 emissions and also, I mean, the price of Portland isn't going down anytime soon. So, <laughs> Yeah, right. So, I mean, what do you think? Do you think there's a, there's a magical fix-all out there, or do you think we're going to continue to see um, options and, and people messing with things like ground glass and, and whatever else might come down the pipe? Do you think this is just going to be a continuous thing? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be continuous because of legislation. That's that's the reason. Not yeah. it's not really because we people in the concrete industry really are beholden to thinking that that we're emitting so much carbon that uh, the planet's going to die. Right. You know, until until all the countries actually work together, then you know I'm I'm not really sure how much all this effort it really does on a on a global basis because there are some major major polluters that account for 80 percent of the right. cement pollution that really aren't doing their part so so look i'm all for things being better and and making the air cleaner but unless everybody's pulling together uh you know us here in the united states canada and europe like us being the only ones that do it aren't even going to account for 10 percent of the the, the global problem 100 percent. and hey backdoor segue to what you want to talk about <laughs> talk about the issue of most world problems let's talk about something that pertains to COVID 19 <laughs> wow that is a heck of a segue yeah we talk about we could do we could do everything to fix our issues but 80 percent of the pollution is coming from looking at you china <laughs> <laughs> they call them out but but things are going to get better and uh in the United States, Canada, and the European countries. We are going to do our part. Already uh, are. We already are, uh, especially in the United States. Uh, did a really good job uh, when the Paris Climate Accord came into effect. Uh, you know, we outpaced everybody. <laughs> we're the other one holding up our end of the bargain. <laughs> we hit all of our benchmarks. We surpassed our benchmarks. Everybody else went the wrong direction. So it was like, or, or if not the wrong direction, barely cut anything. So we were the only ones that did that, and the United States will continue to do that. This and cutting cement production is probably going to be you know part of that effort so it's going to be it's interesting to me to see the cement companies realize that's where it's headed the the governments are going to start legislating it that way the structural engineers are on board supposedly with net zero building goals by 2050 yeah. you know so when you see that stuff start to happen uh you got to say who's this going to impact it's going to impact cement companies so they want to get ahead of this. They want to be the ones that are now driving the change uh, so that they're able to continue to stay in business and make their healthy profits and keep their shareholders happy, shareholders happy. Um, but, yeah, so speaking of what I wanted to talk about specifically, uh, a real shortage, something that's going to impact the ReadyMix guys pretty hardcore. Next year. Uh, yeah, 2021. Thank you, COVID. Here we go. We are about to see a price increase of about 40 to 75% on uh, a compound, sodium thiocyanate. And where that word means absolutely nothing to most of us, <laughs> what you will know is the, uh, the term set accelerator. And that is uh, one of the primary compounds in a lot of set accelerators. It's also found in mid-range water reducers too. But the issue is, is that that same compound is used in almost all the COVID-19 test kits. And so because of that, the supply of sodium thiocyanate is like completely gone. 
<laughs> so so they're working really hard to make more over there. Uh, it's overseas, so it's coming from Asia. They're, they're trying to make more of it as fast as they can, uh, but even then, it's a huge delay. And so on top of that, you got freight issues. So if you're if you're not involved with shipping stuff internationally like our company is, um, I'll go ahead and tell you there's problems because COVID-19 just disrupted everything. And all of a sudden, all these businesses were shut down, factories were shut down, everything's shut down. So cargo's not moving at near the rate that it was. And so you've got ships that are blank sailing. They've got nothing on them. And that is, that is no bueno for these shipping companies. So huge delays. There's, they start not sending as many ships out. And now that things are kind of ramping back up in some economies, we need more ships. But the freight guys got hit so hard. These shipping guys got hit so hard that they're really having to ease back into it. And it's causing a lot of delays. So you've got logistical concerns, supply concerns, and production concerns of this uh, sodium thiocyanate. It's going to cause uh, real problems for ready mix guys trying to get their hands on accelerators. Yep, so got that to look forward to. <laughs> or what you could do, uh, shameless plug, is use Actigel and you can reduce your accelerator use by up to 50%. Ding. Yep. Man, a shameless plug is true, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's our it's our podcast. We can say that if yeah, we want to. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Actigel, Actigel Two Hundred Eight, for being the presenting sponsor of the Add Ten Gallons Concrete Podcast. Also, everyone needs to go to the website actigel.com, a c t i hyphen g e l dot com, and learn how you can save money moving forward. And uh, we got a new website coming out, hopefully uh, first of the year. So be on the lookout for that too. I'm looking forward to that much. Much needed, much welcome. Yep. And so, uh, Joey Bell, all your uh, all your shot crew friends, you know, make sure they know uh, accelerator prices are going up. ActGel can help them alleviate some of those cost concerns. You gotta be interested to know if they know that, or if that's something that they haven't heard about yet. We got some shot crew guys coming on down the line that are going to be guests. They'll probably be interested to hear that. And speaking of uh, spreading the word to the masses, is there an upcoming ASA meeting, or is that kind of on the shelf for a while? Um, they have one in the spring for the, that that happens during the ACI convention. Uh, they used to have one during World of Concrete as well, but as we know, World of Concrete got postponed. I haven't heard about the ACI spring meeting yet. It's usually into March or so, so there's no telling. I yeah. mean, it could it could go either way at this point. I think. Yeah, or you could have it in Florida. They ain't got new rules. <laughs> hey, speaking of Florida, our uh, our guest for today's episode is Jenna Taylor. Jenna is a construction director for HCA Healthcare, uh, and she primarily works in the state of Florida. I mean, HCA is a, a huge company, and they do great things, mostly down south. She did mention that Texas and Florida are the, the two bigger states that they work in. But uh, because she has the privilege of working in Florida, she had a lot of cool stories. <laughs> and, uh, so, so I'm really excited for the listeners to, uh, to get to that portion of the podcast where we get to talk with Jenna about her crazy stories from the state of Florida and people running through job sites and all kinds of, all kinds of crazy stuff. So that was a lot of fun. Um, clothing but, optional. Yeah, clothing <laughs> optional. <laughs> But it is safe for work still. We, we keep this PG-13 around here. It's a kid's show. But, um, yeah, super excited to get into this episode uh, with Jenna. Very smart. Yep. Um, and and uh, really sheds a light on the healthcare business. 
and yeah. the construction of hospitals and I mean what better time to talk about a get uh, to talk about those kind of things than now um, she gets into how you know COVID-19 affected her and her business and uh, a little bit of what we can look forward to in the near future so without further ado this is Jenna Taylor episode 11 All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to episode 11 here. We got Jenna Taylor with us. Jenna, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you on. You know, to get us started, uh, first explain what it is you do and, and how you got there. Um, I am a construction di- director with HCA. We manage 180 plus acute care hospitals across the United States, and my divisions are uh, predominantly Florida. So we have four divisions in Florida, and so I manage all of the construction projects for that state. Oh, wow. Okay. So how, how long have you been in that uh, particular position? Um, I've been a director for a couple years, and prior to that, I was a construction manager. And then prior to that, I was actually on the general contractor side building hospitals, and one of our clients was HCA. Oh, okay. Okay. So you got, uh, got, the, that, got the job you have currently through, uh, through referrals, I'm assuming? Yes. Kind of work, working your way up the up the job site, as they say. Once they um once they have you in the hook, they just they want to keep you on, right? It's it's difficult to build an acute care facility, so they want to um keep the knowledge family. And you touched on something right away that that I wanted to get into. So what better time than now? The challenges and the nuances that go along with building healthcare facilities. Kind of start on the low-hanging fruit. I mean, what what is a, a typical challenge that you have to face that you typically wouldn't have to face on a regular job site? Um, I haven't really built anything else, so it is my normal. But um, many of the challenges are we're building around occupied space. So the sensitive nature of the staff and the patient safety, um, everything that's going on. I mean, many times we're building right next to a NICU. Um, we're building um, above an OR. We're doing vertical expansions and horizontal expansions. So just the nature of um, the space that we're operating is is um, pretty important. The user groups. I mean, so we're not only dealing with the actual physicians and the staff, but also all of the different infrastructure. So you've got all of the equipment, medical equipment, your CT scans, the nurse call. Um, all of those, the imaging equipment, all of that stuff is has to be coordinated, um, you know, for final inspections and before we can start occupying and seeing patients. So, um, and then there's all the um, AHJs. You know, we have ACA in Florida, Oshpod in California, um, just local building inspect, you know, inspectors and and much more heavy oversight uh, in the healthcare world. I guess piggybacking on on that answer, that great answer. What what would you think would be more uh, difficult in your eyes, um, starting from ground up or adding on to a, a current healthcare facility? What what actually um, provides more of a challenge for for what you need to do? Um, ground up is easy. We love those projects. You're not working around you know existing you know space. You're not having to to add on to systems. I mean. Our hospitals, I mean, we have hospitals that were built in the 40s and 50s. And so when you start expanding fire alarm systems and expanding, you know, vertical expansion of elevator, you know, elevator shafts and stuff like that, it gets very complicated. So we love um, our greenfield projects. And and quite frankly, it's only a handful of greenfield projects. Mostly what we're doing is renovation 
horizontal and vertical expansions. Jenna, in preparation for this uh, for this episode, I sent you a question about uh, flooring and vibration and delicate equipment that can sometimes be found within hospitals and labs or whatever you know you're building around. How do you work around that, and how do you remedy uh, those potential problems? So usually, um, we're, we don't do um, learning facilities. So usually, um, most of our sensitive equipment is going to be on the ground floor. So with your, when you're dealing with that type of slab, um, we have less vibration issues. Um, we do have to stiffen the structure many times if we're building, you know, ORs and imaging equipment on the second floor. But typically, we don't do anything past the second floor. So the structural engineer should know that stuff on the front end. Um, but yeah, we do get some crazy requests from users to, you know, put an OR on a seventh floor. And we have to tell them that that's just not an option, right? With, with a steel structure, it does move. And so we can't put a CT scan on the seventh floor or put a robotics OR right on a fifth floor because you're, you're going to feel that motion of the building. Wow, I never would have thought that he, just the motion of the building itself would have that much effect on some of that equipment. It's, it's pretty unbelievable to me. Right. Well, I mean, the tolerance is low, but if the structural engineer is that going going in, then they're going to have the the structure stiffened enough. It's when you go in after the fact and you're renovating or remodeling and trying to put something in a space that was not meant for it. Um, but like I said, the, typically our sensitive areas are not on elevated decks. Do they still build these huge tall buildings to quote unquote sway with the wind like when you're dealing in cities or areas with high winds or weird any kind of weird weather patterns how do you adapt your building to withstand all that i would be lying if i said i knew um we typically (laughs) don't um we don't really go above seven stories um and so we're so we're really um in High rise is typically three to four, depending on the city. So we are in high rise areas, but we aren't doing true high rise buildings. Uh, They just built a brand new hospital up here uh, where I live. I live in York, Pennsylvania, uh, UPMC Medical Center. Just uh, just built a brand new hospital last year. Um, it, It didn't take them very long. It was a Greenfield project. Uh, they moved Memorial Hospital. It was an, was an old hospital, downtown York. They moved it out uh, into the country. Um, it, it's just an absolutely beautiful project. But, but it didn't seem like it took them that long. And I, I'm curious, when you have a Greenfield project, uh, how long does that usually take? You know, what, what's the process for you? When do you get, how long does it take? And where, uh, where does concrete, where do you come in in that project and lend your expertise? Um, okay, so in my world, we are involved from conceptual, um, from the, the concept of the hospital, right? Conceptual design, we actually put a budget to it. So if you, if you think about the entire lifespan of the project, um, from design permitting to construction, it's well over two years. Um, but what you're actually seeing, obviously, in the field construction, once we break ground for a greenfield, we're looking at 12 months. It depends on how complicated the site is. You can do the structure and the building um, in 11 months. Um, you got the site, and then you also got commissioning and turnover of building systems. But yes, you're looking at a 12-month construction process. And um, once again, 
when it gets into the tech expertise of the hospital, we really rely on our structural engineers, our contractors, and our subcontractors. So we are in trouble. If they're calling me in to, to look at a slab, like we're, we're, in, we're up a creek. <laughs> what what's the uh, uh percentage or what's the likelihood of that happening when you get no. called in well never um not for technical stuff um but i do get all the problems so we have um incidents on your project so right now i have probably close to 50 active projects going on in different phases of you know construction and and design and so it's it comes to me when there's a problem. So nobody ever calls me and is like, Jenna, this really great thing is happening. We need you to come. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like our job. Like nobody ever calls us when things are going right and there's there's like rainbows and butterflies everywhere. They call us when crap has hit the fan, right. something's broken, concrete's messed up. But we always we always say too that we, you know they pay us for when things go wrong and not when things are going right. You know when things go wrong, that's when we earn our paycheck. That's right. I mean, if a contractor could go out and read a set of plans and build everything perfectly per plans and specs, then they wouldn't need me. We would just hire a contractor to go do it. And the industry wouldn't be near as interesting as it is. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we get cussed out a lot less, but uh, it actually is so rare that anybody in our company, it's not just the concrete side, but that anybody gets any kind of compliments that we actually posted on our internal message boards. Like, Hey, this customer said we did great. Everybody should think, you know, should hear this. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. You you do have to promote that when you have an an opportunity. And even on the last episode, when we were talking to Natalie Martin, uh, she's, she's a rep and a technical advisor for a chemical company, uh, Crescent Chemical. And we got into a story uh, about how she was taking, taking her licks on the job site and, we kind of made the comment, well, everyone gets yelled at. It's a rite of passage. Um, and that kind of leads us into a famous question we like to ask a lot. I mean, do you have uh, one story that kind of sticks in your mind, the, the craziest thing you've you've seen on a job site, You know, one of those memories that will never leave you? Um, it's really people, um, um, whether it's whether construction, construction workers, workers or, or like a behavioral, behavioral health, health uh, patient uh, getting loose getting... and maybe running naked, you know, through the job site. Something like that is what we might be dealing with in, in my current position. That's what the people want to hear, Jenica. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. We've also had a we had a, a meth head that ran through a temporary wall right into our construction um, entrance. Um, we've had peeping toms in in our construction bathrooms. I mean, we've had very interesting things you know they always talk about in florida like meanwhile in florida Florida it's all true it is all true (laughs) i I, I used to work out west and and things didn't happen out west like they do in florida This is awesome. Something in the water. <laughs> it might be. Now, now, can you, without throwing anybody under the bus per se, can you elaborate on areas of Florida or regions of Florida that might be worse than others as it pertains to Florida man headlines? Um, Central Florida, for sure, and the Panhandle. But I the knew most, <laughs> most of the crazy stuff happens in Central Florida. Panhandle is a little backwoods, but um, Central Florida, Ocala, it's bad. That's that's what I would have guessed, too. So it, it's nice to know that the stereotype holds up. 
<laughs> yeah. I would love to see the video of the meth head running through the wall. <laughs> um, we've had somebody bit um, also. I mean, you like I said, it, meanwhile in Florida, I, nothing surprises me anymore. I kind of get a giggle now when as long as we find out that a patient is not hurt and a staff, staff is not in danger, then we have to we have to laugh a little bit about, about some of the things that happens on the job site. Oh my goodness. Oh my god, that's crazy. Uh you were you're saying that you've got 50 active projects uh in different phases. You know, we manage uh business development what which is essentially what you're managing is literally development of buildings and we manage development of accounts and mm-hmm. uh that that's like what we have is uh like about 60 active developments in different phases uh, and that seems like a lot for us to keep track of how do you keep track of so many projects that you're responsible for um it's it's so hard i have a great team so i have five guys that report to me and so they are the frontline defense so those are the construction managers that are they're managing it day to day um, and then I, I just get brought in when when everybody needs help right um in any type of you know, contracts and, and big change orders obviously come to me for approval, but like I really rely on my guys to to help with that because it's impossible to keep up with 40 to 50 projects at any given time. That's pretty crazy. And and what else uh, or, or who else or how many other people comprise your team? If there's there's five construction managers, you know, average 10 jobs a piece, I'm sure they're managing some other people as well. What's the size of your entire team? So we have three directors and ugh, 12 or 13 construction managers. So we're managing um, easily over 100 projects, usually over 120 projects at a given time. Um, and then we also have freestanding ERs and ambulatory surgery centers and all of that other stuff that's happening as well. But we really just count acute care projects. And acute care projects could be anything from a $3 million renovation all the way to a $250 million greenfield project. One of the only times I've ever got a chance to work with uh, HCA or being involved in a project with them was trying to help them with uh, with the floors, on, especially on the elevated slabs, where uh, they were trying to reduce the relative humidity of the surface of the concrete. Uh, because a few years ago, um, I guess maybe it was a decade ago, when the uh, tile for the floors of these hospitals, uh, the adhesive went from being uh, petroleum-based to being water-based adhesive uh, to reduce the VOCs. And when they did that, they learned very quickly that the relative humidity on the surface of the concrete slab is still like 97 98% after like seven days. And if you try to put that flooring down, uh, it it's all going to curl back up and, and peel off and be useless and you have to go back and do it all over again. Uh, so in an effort to speed up the building process, uh, they've tried to develop uh, low humidity uh, concrete slabs, really talking about the surface there, so they can get these uh, these flooring tiles down uh, very, very quickly. Uh, our product didn't really work for that. We sell some other products that did. But is that a challenge that you deal with, Jenna, uh, as uh, you go through the construction phase? And and how do you manage that? Um, yes, um, we do set aside allowances and just understanding that if it is above a 90, we're going to have to do something to do some moisture mitigation. Um, when it comes to the adhesives, we really try to uh, reduce the finger pointing 
by going with the flooring. Um, we use all Mannington. We're our sole source with Mannington flooring right now. So we, we go with those adhesives. That way there's no finger pointing on, you know, it was installation or it was a, it adhesives or it was the flooring's fault. But yes, we have um, moisture issues um, many times. We use Concure and Ardex and Bead Blast, Epoxy, you name it. We, we spare no expenses in making sure that, that, um, that we can save our schedule by a quick install, but also so that we do not have to come back in after that space is occupied and rework the flooring because time is money once we're starting to see patients. Well, as, as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong because, because I am a, by no means an expert at, in, in this, but, but as I understand it, that that's one of the most critical things, right? The, the moisture, uh, the relative humidity, the surface, these slabs, just a huge delay. And, and you laid out uh, three potential solutions, whether they're separate or used together. Uh, but could you answer, is, is that really one of the most critical factors uh, in the concrete side of this construction? And then those mitigation efforts, uh, could you go into some detail on that? Uh, we're, uh, we'd love to learn more about it. Um, yeah, so yes, moisture is obviously an issue. So go into detail in which side. So, um, so you said, uh, so Ardex is one uh, option for mitigation. The uh, Concure is an option for mitigation and uh, potentially epoxy. Uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit more about those things? Yeah, I mean, so we we typically go with the Concure system. So if we get the relative humidity back and it's above 90, um, we have a, a per square foot cost that we negotiate with most of our subcontractors on the front end. Um, and so then we, we can basically say, okay, well, what's our square footage of that? And we know exactly what that's going to cost to go in and do moisture mitigation for that area. So um, in most of our climates, we're assuming that we're going to have to do moisture mitigation. And so we also have a floor flatness issue too. So floor levelness and floor flatness is also, so we are sometimes going in and grinding floors and then bead blasting and then um, literally sealing in the moisture, right? With the Concure system is, is essentially what it does. And so you're sealing in the moisture so that then once we lay the adhesive and the flooring sticks and the moisture stays in the slab and doesn't obviously come into the flooring. Yeah, I've, I remember seeing uh, the specs one time for one of these hospital floors, and it, I believe it was where an MRI was going to be, and the the tolerance from one end to the other was so incredibly tight, um, and, and they were like, oh, we got to bring in this California laser screed, and we got to get it to just millimeters, I mean, just across the entire span, it was of a millimeter, something crazy, and then the floor had to be incredibly dense. Uh, so when it's, I was interested to know, are you dealing with uh, several different types of concrete mixes when you're uh, going to build these rooms for MRIs or, or x-rays or, or operating rooms? It seems like you could run across a lot of different mix designs. Are you involved with that at all? Um, so we don't do a lot. So no, not for the slabs. Um, when it comes to the some of the rooms, um, we do more than imaging. So we also have to um, floor flatness and floor levelness is important for trip hazards too throughout the whole hospital. But when it comes to the special systems within those imaging rooms, a lot of those are like a self-leveling epoxy mix, right? A special flooring system that come in um, after the fact. Typically, no, we're not doing um, a bunch of different, you know, 
a mixed designs, right, for the slabs. So we're coming in over the top and, and dealing with issues once they, you know, once our concrete is, is finished. Gotcha, gotcha. So that's a separate uh, third-party contractor that's coming in after the ReadyMix guy's already poured his slab. That's had time to cure, and then uh, guys come in after the fact with their uh, little hoses and put, you know, little grout mixers, and uh, and make up those self-leveling self floor compounds. Yeah, that's right. right. Good, good. Um, in in the construction of these hospitals, when you're when you're doing the add-ons and the renovations. Does like the the hospital decide like, hey, we want to expand, let's call HCA, and then HCA calls the architects and engineers and and everybody and the structural engineer, everybody that needs to be involved in the project. Do they call you and then you're a one stop shop to help them uh, develop a plan uh, to to expand or renovate their hospital? Um, close. So you can think of each hospital as like a business unit, and so the business unit says, you know what. Um, we're at 90% occupancy in our, you know, our med surge. And so that's when they say we need more med surge. And so then we have obviously our department that helps out and we will say, okay, well, how many beds do you think you can, you can fill up? And they say 24. And then we actually run the, the analysis on what that would look like, right, as a payback. So what it would cost and then what that payback would look like once, once those, um, those rooms are occupied. Um, that becomes a development book. And then our guys, our construction guys actually put a budget to it. Um, and then the business unit being the facility has to then get approval from their division and their group. We have a, lots of hierarchy in, a corporate, in corporate America. So once the facility, the division, and the group agree on what that budget looks like and what that business case is, then it goes you know, literally to the CEO of HCA who signs off on it. Once they sign off on it, that's when we we hire our department hires the architect and engineers. And then depending on the criticality of that project, we might decide to go ahead and sign up um, our contractors and our subcontractors in an early design involvement. Um, think of it as almost like a design build to get started quicker. Because it, it speed to market is the most important thing in our business. The minute that they approve that money, we are just trying to get heads in beds, right? Because the amount of capitalized interest and all of that stuff that's that's hanging out there until we actually can see revenue and see patients is is a big part of our business. Interesting. So in the the hospital world, uh, the way they measure thing is by the number of beds. Mm -hmm. That that would be the critical factor when they're talking about expanding or moving is is number of beds. Interesting. So with that in mind, with Quick expansion, needing more space. Have you guys seen uh, an uptick in business since the pandemic uh, struck early last year? Uh, so different lines of business. So we've seen a decrease in, e, um, in ER admissions. People don't want to go to the ER. So where typically folks would come in, they're scared to go because they don't want to get coronavirus. Um, we have seen a, a decrease in elective surgeries. So a lot of our med surge um, business is is fed from our ORs and our surgeries, right, that go to the med surge. So um, we've we've seen a, a slight decline. It's gotten better. Um, we haven't seen any um, decline in obviously women's services, and that's going to be your babies and, and NICU. Um, that's up and surgeries are starting to come back. I mean, you can only hold off on surgeries, non-elective surgeries for so long, but 
but we are hopeful that um, business will return, um, you know, when this gets under control, but we have scaled down our business. I don't know if any, um, all of our um, quarterly HCA um, earnings calls are all public, right? So um, we've actually scaled down a lot of our, op, you know, operational expenses to meet the demand and, and manage to squeak out a decent year for 2020. Yeah, that, that's interesting because uh, I imagine that goes state to state. I mean, you're operating Florida, which seems to have been a little less tight on on the lockdowns and restrictions. Uh, have you noticed a variance uh, state to state? You said you're mostly managing Florida, so I don't know uh, if they talk about on the earnings call that whether it's state to state on those. But have you uh, ha- have you seen a difference there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's really different per um, area. So we have Miami, obviously, is a little bit was restricted much more than, say, the panhandle. Um, so we've had to come up with protocol to keep our construction workers safe, to keep them separated from the ED. Um, you know, we even had the con- our construction teams helping to figure out how we turn the all of our hospitals into, you know, a COVID, you know, ward, right? Because at the beginning of this, when we we were planning on all of our hospitals literally being overrun by COVID uh, patients. That has not been the case, knock on wood. And um, we've had two facilities that were at maximum capacity with COVID patients at two different instances in the pandemic, which is excellent, right? So we've um, operationally done a really good job of making sure that we are um, dispersing those patients, you know, right? Um, and and our staff has just been phenomenal in, in making sure that we have the capacity, right, and being forward thinking about making sure we've got places to send um, patients when they come in. Is, is HCA involved talking with uh, local leaders and government uh, to give them this data? Because just just speaking as a layman, uh, I've had to go to some hospitals this year, and they weren't being overrun where I live, but all things that were elective were canceled. So, you know, my daughter, they were going to take out her tonsils and adenoids, canceled for the whole year. I need shoulder work done, canceled for the whole year, because if it's not life-threatening, they're not doing it. And and I just thought that was, uh, you know, misinformed personally. But, but I don't know, because I don't work somewhere like HCA, and I don't work in the government, but I just wasn't seeing it. And, uh, and so I don't know, is that a conversation that HCA has with local leaders and representatives to give them? Is that where uh, they're getting their data is from you guys so you can tell them, hey, we're not being overrun. Let's, uh, you know, do you give them any kind of advice or anything like that? So we do communicate with them. And it was a it it was um, without getting too much into politics. It was a bit shocking, right, for our organization when people were shutting down elective surgeries. I mean, that is our business. And so when you shut down elective surgeries, that is greatly impacting our business. Um, We subsequently had to shut down our construction projects, right, Um, which was shocking for us and our partners to literally say, hey, stop what you're doing. We need you to go home. You know, we don't know what this pandemic is going to do. Thank goodness, right, that all of those projects that we stopped or slowed down due to the pandemic have now are back online and are either have already started back or planning to start back, right? We're in in the process of restarting all these projects. Um, It was devastating to business. And thankfully now most of our, the majority of our hospitals are in Florida and Texas. Um, And those um, states really understand 
the importance of healthcare. Um, so they have had less um, restrictions on it. But it is hard to hear the media. Um, even in Nashville, if you watch the news, they constantly are quoting um, certain private healthcare companies or you know healthcare entities that are saying that they're at max capacity. We are not at max capacity, so it is hard to to hear that on the news and and to know that we have plenty of capacity, right? for these COVID patients. So it does feel like a scare tactic, unfortunately, sometimes in the media, um, which is why I try to avoid it. What, what is the typical occupancy rate of an ICU unit? Do you know on a percentage basis what the typical rate is? Um, you mean for now in the pandemic? No, I'm sorry, pre, uh, pre-pandemic, because I, I always look, I, I've been in hospital, unfortunately, my brother, uh, had uh, some severe issues and we're constantly uh, going back to the hospital for him. So you just see the ICU units and they almost always look like they're pretty full <laughs> just normally. And so when the pandemic hit and people are like, oh, the ICUs are full. I'm like, yeah, they're always full, like 70% because that's how they make money. You threw out 70%. So 80% is when we start looking at funding a new project. So when people start getting at 80%, we consider that full. Um, what people don't see when, so when you go into the hospital to visit a patient, you are going into an occupied wing, right? Most likely, whether it's med surge or ICU or, or whatever that postpartum, you're seeing um, an operational wing. What you're not seeing is that there might be other floors or other wings that there's no patients in or staff. And so we that the idea is that it's it's expensive, right, to run a hospital. You've got all the staff there. You've got everything. So you try to cluster the patients together. So what's happened a lot of times is that we've had to, to we have many ICU units, right, that don't even have patients in them. Um, and so then you grow once you hit that capacity in that one unit, that 12 bed or 10, 12 bed unit or 20 bed. It depends on, you know, the design of that that building. Then they open up another one. Right. And then you have to staff up that other wing. So what sometimes um, patients or I'm sorry, visitors don't see is they only see what what unit they're in and they don't see the other units that may or may not have patients in them. That's, thank you. Thank you for that answer. And then I think you put out another critical point. I'll let, I'll let Joey get his, his question uh, is that these units are like 10 or 12 people. You know, so if you see a really high statistic on fill rate, you're still talking about a handful of people. So a lot of these, um, you know, have a couple hundred, you know, ICU beds, right? Some of the larger and ICU capacity too. That's one of the things that we've learned. I mean, there for a while, was it you know, we thought that it had to be negative pressure, right? Um, we thought that, you know, there were all these things that we just didn't know when we were trying to understand what what had to be done for the coronavirus. I mean, but really it's about having um, the vent, right? That's what, that was the limiting, the limiting factor was having the vent. Um, many of the patients that come in are don't need a vent. So um, the, we can pull up statistics and, and know that, let's say at a hospital, there are 27 positive COVID patients there. And then it might only be that 18 of them are on vents. So um, it, it's been manageable is a good way to put it. I mean, we definitely are seeing spikes across the country right now. Um, but we also track, um, we track metrics. We have metrics upon metrics at HCA, which is wonderful to help us understand how to get ahead of whatever it might be, right? Construction, 
healthcare, whatever. Um, but you know, we have weighted averages where we can compare what the market is doing to what the facilities are seeing, right? To then flex and and understand, like, do we need to start sending more nurses and more staff to that area? Because if you're looking at a seven-day rolling average, we know what's coming up in that in that market. So we're constantly looking at it from a corporate standpoint, really to understand what's going on in that market. And that was really before coronavirus, we've just now amped up, right, our metrics and tracking. We talk so much about uh, all the negative impacts that, you know, this year has brought to us. Are there any positives uh, to come out of 2020? Have you figured out anything like, you know, how to be more efficient or how, or is there anything you've learned uh, dealing with all this uh, that you can apply to, you know, 2021 and beyond? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to take the positive out of everything. I mean, we in in our world and construction, we say we do everything for the patients. And a lot of times we're not really right there seeing the patients. And this really brought, I think, the focus to our construction department. And like, this is truly patient oriented, right? And so um, everything we do now, we have to think about, you know, how it's coronavirus, patient impact, obviously, I mean, pulling off the staff, I mean, was just pulling off construction staff was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my, you know, in my career, having to make those calls and say, hey, guys, I'm really sorry, but we need you to put down all your tools and go home. You know, it it's devastating. I mean, we sent home basically the, you know, 80 percent of our construction teams, you know, just sent home. That means all the subcontractors, everything just literally came to a screeching halt. Um, thankfully, our partners were really understanding um, because, like you said earlier, when when elective surgeries are no longer allowed, then they, they understand the business aspect of it. But it was really hard to watch some of our um, some of our partners have to downsize I don't, I don't know a better way to say it, right? But um, it, it was frustrating. We're, I'm happy to report that most of our partners are in a really good shape and are in good shape right now and started back. I mean, some people had right-sized a few, you know, staff members, but now we're seeing the exact opposite. Many of our partners are hiring right now. So um, very, very positive moving into 2021 that I think everybody realized what's really important you know, get back to basics. Everybody was just running wild, right? Um, everybody was profitable. We were seeing margins through the roof on some of our projects. And I think it was a good gut check, right? And we knew that the economy was going to have a right size. I just don't think we were ready for it being right size and sitting and hitting so close to our home, which is healthcare. Let's uh, let's pause on, you know, HCA and, and you know, all uh, everything you do there. Let's back up to CIM and, you know, cause any CIM grad we have on here, we want to, you know, plug the program and, you know, see what brought people to that program and, you know, where they've been since. So what brought you to CIM? What was your experience there? And, uh, what was your first job out of, you know, out of college or your internship? Just kind of take us along that journey there. Yeah, so I um, didn't want to, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I still don't, right? So I was a marketing major because, um, you know, just go broad. And then Austin Cheney was doing, at that time, was doing his little 101, you know, come learn about the program. And 
you know, it just, I think everybody needs a specialty, right? I mean, I think that I was going the exact opposite route and saying, I'll, I'll go marketing that way I can do anything. And so then I saw, you know, concrete and the construction and back then it wasn't cool to be a, a woman in construction. So that was also nice to just be, you know, something new, you know, math and science were always a strength. Um, and then once I got in the program, like, you know, Dr. Brown and Sally and you just, everybody was great. The students were awesome. We got to go to the bar and drink beer after classes. And it just felt like such a great community um, of, of people. And, you know, we all stay in touch and not everybody's still in concrete, but, you know, it touches some aspect of our lives, like throughout our career. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that I stumbled across that 101 class and, and I'm, didn't go necessarily right into construction. Uh, I'm sorry, into concrete, but I did go into an internship with Jay Dunn. Um, and then that turned into obviously a full-time job. Well, back then it was RJ Griffin showing my age a little bit. And um, I've once again started as a healthcare builder and really haven't done anything since um, I got out of college. Uh, what was your experience through CIM? Uh, I don't, I don't know when you graduated, but uh, you know, I graduated 2010. Uh, Paul graduated, I think, that same year. You know, maybe a semester before me. Um, what was your experience throughout the program, and what have you been able to apply what you learned there to your current job? So I think I graduated, I graduated college in 07, but I think I finished my last concrete class in 06. Um, it was funny on a, on a call the other day, we were talking about some hairline cracking in, in a, a deck outside of patio and somebody was talking about something and, and they asked for my, my opinion and I said, you know what, concrete cracks, that's really it's <laughs> really what it does and, and it was, everybody got a good laugh out of it, but it's true, right? Um, I will say from the education um, piece, I don't get into the technicalities of really concrete and the, and the structure and stuff like that, but it's all about the people, right? So we had uh, great staff and great folks and the network. And today, I mean, building is all about the people. So as long as you, as long as you have a great group of folks that can come together and solve a problem, that's really what, that's really what this world is built on. So, um, in construction or whatever, if I've got a problem and I need, I'm going to call Paul and be like, how, what's wrong with my slab? Help me figure this out. Um, that's really, that's really what I took out of the program is just building on that network, the people and, and putting your team together to, nobody has to know the issues, right, that you ran into throughout that construction process, right? All, all people care about is that building is open you can occupy it and, and they don't want to know all the dirty laundry that went into it. <laughs> that's, that's, a good, that's a good point. Um, do you have one specific person that, that is your go-to that deserves a shout out right now? It's because we, we shout out Ryan Betts, Argo Cement all the time. <laughs> there is a, there is a go-to guy for us. Is there a go-to person for you as well? Um, not nationally because we're really dealing in local markets, but, um, you know, I, I will say I give Dr. Brown, if I've got any, any major question, I'm going to go to her and she's going to filter me to where I need to be. But, um, we, we really have such a huge network in all of these areas, you know, Florida with all the crazies down there. Um, but there's a lot of really good people also. 
<laughs> right. Just right. forget a, to mention that. Yeah, since in a theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but what what better person to fall back on than Dr. Brown, the the ultimate switchboard of of networking, right? Right. I right. Uh, I unfortunately am not uh, a part of the CIM program. I'm I met Paul and Joey through work. I mean, we, we work at, at the same company, but uh, I met them post CIM. And I think the last three or four people and probably half of the guests that we've had on the show, they've all been tied into the CIM program in one way, shape or form. So I'm certainly the, the redheaded stepchild of the group here. I'm just kind of learning through osmosis. <laughs> well, there's still time. That's what I was told last episode, too. There's, <laughs> there's still time to go back, get your master's, and do homework again as a 30-year-old. <laughs> well, and in fairness to you, uh, you may not have been a CIM grad, but you did pass the MCA short course, uh, level two and three. That's no joke. And uh, you uh, can run concrete lab with the best of them. So uh, don't sell yourself too short. That's right. Just that's right. You, yeah. I got I got what? a couple what? semesters worth of information in in about 72 hours. So. <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. I joked with I somebody joked the other day that I was a level three flat work te- technician, and it was pretty comical because they looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, well, if you need somebody to finish your patio, I am your person. So. <laughs> That's that weekend side money. <laughs> Yeah, there is. According to Jesse Boone, there's a whole bunch of money in yeah. that in that business. So uh, if you get tired of dealing with uh, bureaucracy and business units, you can always uh, pour driveways. <laughs> you know, that sounds refreshing, you know, just to not have to deal with. Sometimes I love the people aspect of my job, but sometimes the people aspect, especially when they're running naked through the job site, is, <laughs> is hard to is hard to deal with. But um, I, I can it might be more therapeutic, right? Kind of like a, being a florist, like to just finish concrete. I'm sure you guys have probably heard this throughout the, um, throughout the discussions is that one thing I'm starting to discover is I miss being close to the jobs, right? So it's, it's interesting. Like every time you get promoted, you get further and further away from the work and closer and closer to the bureaucracy, right? And corporate yeah. America. And so, you know, I miss talking to the finishers and going out into the field and, and understanding what's going on in the problem. And now it's more, you know, talking to CEOs and stuff like that. And so it, it needs to be a healthy balance. But yeah, I, I, you know, now go, it's starting to make me a little sad. Like I do miss being out there in the field and doing that kind of stuff. You know, I can't remember the last time I wore jeans. I mean, it's been 10 years. I got to wear jeans to work. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think well, there's always going to be a, a disconnect from, you know, corporate office, you know, field guys. Um, and I've, I'm in a similar situation. You know, I started out in the field and, you know, I worked my way up. And uh, when we see field time now, it's more of an observer than, you know, a worker. I mean, we get dirty, you know, when we're out on job site and whatever else, but it's not the same. And uh, I do miss, you know, running the loader and I miss batching concrete every now and then. And I miss hanging out with the, with the Hispanic boys out on the job site and talking smack with them, you know, every day, you know, there's, there's just going to be that disconnect, but it's always good to go and, you know, visit the job site. You know, I know you just said it probably tickles you to death if you get to go to the job site anymore because it's exciting. It's different. We uh we haven't been able to miss it yet. We have 
we have uh, what you would call, Jenna, what you would call uh, weak business units here uh, at Active Minerals. And so that means you are exposed to a lot of things. Uh, hierarchies are a little bit frayed. And uh, so we have to do everything on the on the uh, administrative side as well as uh, the technical and, and the field side. So uh, you you have sounds like you have strong business units at HCA. <laughs> but it, but it's good to, it's good to be well rounded, right? They say that you need to be able to change the toner and the copy machine. You need to be able to do everything, right? I I always joke um it's kind of not fitting right now, but I always joke when somebody asks like you know when I meet people on the job site, I try to talk to the guys when I'm out there, right? When they're doing the dog and pony show, I'll I'll venture off and go talk to one of the you know workers and ask them how it's going, right? And they're always they always laugh when they find out that I have a concrete degree, and they always they always look at my hands and usually they're manicured and I'm like these hands look like some you know somebody that's doing it doing, you know, actual work, and now they look like they've been mangled. So the answer is yes right now, but typically on the job site, they would be manicured and somebody would be laughing that I actually have a concrete degree because it doesn't look like it at all. No, I can't tell you how many times I've been laughed at when I tell somebody I have a concrete Oh, you're stupid. <laughs> well, went to high school in Alabama. I graduated with all my teeth, and I know math, so I was I was doing all right. Relative term. <laughs> Talk to people on the job site. That just goes back to you know, I'm sure we've all heard the saying, you know, treat the janitor the same way you treat the CEO, and that's just being a good person, being a people person. And if you can treat those guys that are out on the job site, breaking their backs every day with the same respect that you, you know, that you treat the guy running a multi-million dollar company, you know, that's just, that's just proving you're a good person and you recognize hard work, no matter what it looks like. Well, thank you. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting when the owner is on the job site and everybody wants to walk you around and tell you all the good stuff, but um, that's all well and fine. But if you really want to know how something's going, you go ask somebody that's working um, and you can tell the culture of the job site. You can tell how, you know, the happiness level. And and that's what's really important. And, you know, for the most parts, our, our projects go really well. And but, yeah, you always want to you always want to go get the actual um, vibe of the project and and the guys are usually extremely willing to tell you how it's going what can be done better and and just excited that somebody's asking their opinion and now um, I'm not sure how much you guys get into the tech you know like the last the pull planning system like the last planner system but that whole um, you know lean culture right of doing scheduling is asking the folks in the field, you know, the specifics. And so that's where, that's where we're, we're going. I mean, we've been doing last planner for a while now we're doing it on all of our projects to really, it's not the superintendent dictating it. It's the actual folks that are doing the work that are coming to the daily huddles and giving their input on the timeframes. And that's how we're really getting better schedule certainty and not just having that, you know, authoritative, like, you know, dictator superintendent telling everybody how it's going to be. Right, for sure. And, it, and it, it makes those people, I guess, a little bit more accountable to the timeline themselves. Since they essentially make the timeline, it makes everybody more accountable and thus more efficient. I was going to try to make it this entire time without saying accountable, because that's like my phrase. Like, I want everybody to just be accountable for their work. And if they are, everything just runs so much smoother. So I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> 
it's a, it's a very, very team sport mentality. I'm not sure if you played team sport in high school and college or anything like that, but if there's one takeaway that I took from, from playing football, it was if you do your job and everyone else does theirs, then the, the, the score will take care of itself. Flag football champions at MTSU. So yes. <laughs> Jenna, this was a fantastic interview. We certainly appreciate your time. And actually I had three or four questions and they were addressed by Paul and Joey like succinctly. So we might actually be getting better at this. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Make okay. me sound smart. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'll have a, I'll have an issue with the the opposite. As a matter of fact, you you uh, you come across very intelligent. Oh Lord, I don't, I don't know about that. You're like, so how does concure work? I'm like, oh, I don't know. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. You were throwing around enough acronyms though. You yeah, smart. yeah, yeah. You had all the business speak. All the business speak was like right on. I was it like, was. oh man, did she get an MBA? She knows all the words. I, I do I, have a master. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, um, well um, if y'all need any clarification or um, anything else, let me know. Let me know. Okay. Will do. Thank Thanks, you very Jim. much. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Jim. Okay. That's going to do it for today's episode. One final thank you to Jenna. Appreciate you being on the show. And thank you to all you listeners out there listening along with us. Uh, be sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And also check us out on social media. Our Facebook and Instagram pages can be found by searching Add 10 Gallons. Uh, so go check us out there for uh, up-to-date content and even teasers for our next episodes. Also, big thanks to Actigel 208 as the presenting sponsor of the At 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Check them out at actigel.com, A-C-T-I hyphen G-L.com. Be on the lookout for episode 12. It'll very likely be in the new year, maybe the first week of 2021. Uh, we'll have that out and episode 12 will be ready for you then. Uh, until that time, uh, take care. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas.